the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Thursday, July the 2nd, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Today on July 2nd, 1881, President James A. Garfield was shot by Charles Gateau. He was at a Washington railroad station waiting for a train. Garfield died in September. Gateau was hanged in June 1882. I'm going to come back to President Garfield in a few moments later in the program today. I've got more to say about him, but we'll move on on what happened today in history. Today in 1776, the Continental Congress passed a resolution saying that, quote, these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That was a big statement. In doing so, our founders laid everything they had, including their honor, their wealth, and everything on the line because they believed in freedom. And they believed freedom came from God, not from the government. Today in 1917, riot, rioting erupted in East St. Louis. Whites and blacks, about 50 people died. Today, in 1937, Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, they disappeared over the Pacific Ocean. They were attempting to make the first round-the-world flight along the equator. Today, in 1961, famous author Ernest Hemingway, he shot himself to death at his home in Ketchum, Idaho. Today, in 1963, President John F. Kennedy, he met with Pope Paul VI at the Vatican. It was the first meeting between a Catholic U.S. chief executive and the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Today, in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law a sweeping civil rights bill that had just been passed by Congress. These were the days when the greatest of all poverty industry was launched in America. If you look back at history and look back at what Johnson did with his great society, you can see where that has taken us today. And a lot of blacks are looking at that and they're saying, wait a minute, that was not the path to success. It created a culture of dependence and it continues to do so today. Today, 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court in Gregg versus Georgia ruled 72 that the death penalty was not inherently cruel or unusual. And today, in 1986, a ruling in a pair of cases, the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action. They said, yeah, that's a remedy for past job discrimination. I saw a note today that was came across the news feeds. Students at Fresno State University, they're circulating a petition, and a lot of people are signing it. They're calling for the removal of a statue of Mahatma Gandhi. I thought... I always I haven't spent a lot of time studying Gandhi, but I kind of always thought he was the peace guy. No, the students are saying, no, that's not true at Fresno State University. 
They say this statue has got to go because, and I'm quoting from their petition, Gandhi has alleged prejudices against some minority groups. I'm not here to support Mahatma Gandhi, but I'm just pointing out the insanity of what's going on in our country today. He's alleged to have had some prejudices against some unknown minorities. Boy, oh boy. Well, the summer of love is over. Seattle. (laughs) Yeah, Mayor Durkin, she finally had to break up with her friends. That was a real affair that they had going on there, I'll tell you, a political affair. They were occupying Capitol Hill. The world was following this. Seattle became world famous again for a different reason. She couldn't support him anymore. The pressure was too great, the political pressure. She was beginning to look like a fool, and she knew it. So she changed courses. She had to break up. The summer of love is over for the moment. The festival, as she called it as well, is over. After four shootings and two deaths, one a teenager, the love is gone. And so are the former heroes. (laughs) Yeah, they came in. Boy, it didn't take long. The police came in in force yesterday, yesterday morning. I want to talk to you a little bit about that today because there's some things we can take away from this. Yesterday morning, about 5 a.m., the Seattle Police Department, along with help from the Bellevue Police and the FBI, they swept into the so-called CHOP, the no-cop zone. The the zone of socialism is what it really was, anarchy laced with socialism. That's basically what that was what was going on there. They came in with heavily equipped officers, tactical vehicles. You've probably seen some of the pictures. The world has. They cleared out the zone. They arrested people who wouldn't leave. Mayor Durkin, just a little more than two weeks ago, was saying, and I, I don't want to pick on her, but I mean, it. Seattle's a pretty big city. It's a big deal in the world for all kinds of reasons. And she's the mayor. And just two weeks ago, she was talking about what a wonderful place it was. She was calling. She called it the summer of love. She said, oh, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. She referred to it as a, a festival and a festival-like atmosphere and on and on. And others were doing the same thing. It wasn't just her, but she's the mayor of the city. Boy, that all ended yesterday at 4.58 a.m. <laughs> mayor Durkin, in an ex- executive order, she declared that gathering in this area An unlawful assembly requiring immediate action from city agencies, including the police department. She pulled the trigger, figuratively speaking. By 9.30, the police had arrested 31. By this morning, they're saying that they have arrested 44 people who didn't cooperate. They just arrested them, took them to jail, locked them up. Boy, that's a departure from what we've seen in the past, not only in Seattle, but Portland and San Francisco and all over the place. There's an awakening to the fact that maybe law and order does have a place in society. One homeless guy was there. He had kind of moved in with them and uh, become one of them. I doubt that he agreed with their philosophy. He probably didn't care or even know what their philosophy was. But he told the press, he said, I'm going to really miss this place. He said, I feel safe here. And he said, I feel accepted. And he said, I really like all the free stuff. Yeah, they always do. 
The little country within a country had been there about three weeks. The leaders who had been driven, the police from their East Precinct building, yeah, they went in, they torched it, messed with it, broke all the windows out, been sitting there empty. It's an embarrassment to any law enforcement. It should be. They've told an adoring press that CHOP was an example of a new progressive kind of self-government with no cops. And the press has breathlessly reported it. But as I said, after shootings, two black men, one teenager dead, it's all changed now. As the exodus was taking place yesterday, I noticed that there was a leader there with a with a bullhorn, you know, one of those self, you know, battery-operated deals. And he was yelling at the crowd. He was giving them direction. He said, everybody out. We're, we'll get another place. Everybody out. I'm quoting him. Don't taunt the officers. The whole world can see us now. Well, the whole world was watching. The Washington Post reported yesterday that U.S. Attorney General Barr, he was watching, he praised the chief of police best. He praised her move in a statement yesterday. He said the violence in the area had undermined the very rule of law principles that the protesters professed to defend. He said the message of today's, this is Attorney General Barr, he said the message of today's action is simple but significant. The Constitution protects the right to speak and assemble freely, but it provides no right to comment violence or, or commit violence or defy the law. And such conduct has no place in a free society governed by law, Barr said. That used to be a given, but not anymore. As the far-left progressives work to remake America. This episode has been an example of where so-called leftist progressivism takes a culture every single time in history and in Seattle. It's all the same. It ends the same every single time. A few people grab power. They take over from the rest. Violence, oppression, all of that follows every single time. I saw an article yesterday that Dennis Prigger had written a couple of years ago, actually, it was in 2018, I think, but he was talking about the principles as well as a couple of things that were happening there. In fact, it caught my attention because of a solid gold toilet. I had talked about that on this program a couple of years ago. You don't forget that. That's the only one I've ever seen. I haven't seen it in person, but I saw a picture of it. And I talked about it on this program a couple of years ago. So the story caught my attention. I looked at it. So part of what I'm sharing right now is from an article written by Dennis Prager. It was published, I think it was in the uh, National Review. And um, it's taken from the article that he wrote. It's a very thoughtful argue, um, article, and it's it's very it's penetrating in its impact when you read the article. But as I said, it was written in 2018, not today. But Prager quotes this Harvard professor, Steve Pinker, He's an atheist, a liberal. Outside of the natural sciences and a few other disciplines, such as mathematics and businesses, this professor, atheist professor, says universities are becoming laughingstocks of intolerance. They are. And it's all due to progressivism. When you attend it, <clears throat> excuse me, when you attend an American university, you're taught to have contempt for America and its founders, to prefer socialism to capitalism, to divide human beings by race and ethnicity. 
You are taught to shut down those who differ with you, not to debate them. And you're taught to place feelings over reason, which is a guaranteed route to eventual evil. It affects the arts. The title of his article was, The Left Ruins Everything It Touches. (laughs) So true. It does. Prager says he gives a couple of examples of the many ways in which the progressive left is ruining the arts. As I said, I was aware of both of these, but particularly one caught my attention. One, in 2013, the Orange County Museum of Art in California placed a huge 28-foot sculpture of a dog outside the museum. It periodically urinates a yellow fluid onto the museum wall. (laughs) That's art. It was award-winning art. In 2016, one of the most prestigious art museums in the world, the Guggenheim in New York, they featured a pure gold working toilet. Toilet bowl was pure gold. Do you know that taxpayers probably most likely paid for that through grants to the arts, quote unquote? So anyway, this pure gold working toilet, it was put where visitors could get to it. It was a real one. They could stand in a little stall there, a little bit of privacy, and they could use it. The name of the exhibit was America. So one could literally go to the bathroom, relieve themselves on America. And people were lined up around the block in the picture that I saw a couple of years ago. I never forgot it, obviously. Breger also talks a little bit about race relations in his article. He says, keep in mind, he said, the great uh, Philadelphia Orchestra has been co-opted. That was then, and and it still has, I'm sure, to become a voice for the leftist hate. The previous week, he said, calling what happened, it was the previous week from when he wrote it, he said what happened was about a political rant put to musical garbage. That's what Prager called it. In the fifth movement of the concert at this place in Philadelphia, the concert venue. The fifth movement is titled, My House is Full of Black People. The black team narrator chants the following lines in this concert. The country is full of black people, all wanting to be heard, while old white men draw lines on maps to shut all of them up. But a moment later, the teen reappears on the stage and begins screaming at the audience, And he says, if you would all just expletive, listen. You can see how far we've progressed in the last 24 months. Free speech, almost all of the incoming, all of the incoming college freshmen do not really believe in free speech. Some of them think they do coming in, some do, but for the most part, they don't. Because anything labeled hate speech is forbidden. Anything that is deemed to be something, even if it isn't, becomes that thing. Mahatma Gandhi, and again, I'm I'm not supporting him. I, I, I don't know that much about him. I'm not that interested in Mahatma Gandhi. But where does it end? These kids come to college. Their parents write these checks and take these loans, and they send them off to college, and they walk in there innocent in many cases, and they're just thrown into this cesspool of insanity. 
And yes, it isn't just the universities, but they are the prime suspect because kids sit there year after year after year and get quote-unquote educated. That's part of what's wrong in our culture. The people that are running these riots and these this anarchy in CHOP and wherever else around the country, they've been indoctrinated by this kind of thinking. I'm not absolving them from responsibility, but I am saying there are other fingerprints all over these kids. And it's primarily crazy professors, tenured professors. The whole idea of free speech is people's ability to discuss their point of view, whether you agree with them or not. But today, so many conservative points of view are forbidden. Polls consistently show that people are becoming more and more silent because they're afraid of retribution if their beliefs are not acceptable or in sync with the progressive culture. How many times have we heard, and I've talked about it on this program, conservative uh, speakers, well-known in some cases, published, successful, they're invited by the Republican club or the conservative club or whatever, a Christian club, on these university campuses. They come and anarchy breaks out and riots start and puts people's lives in danger. I mean, it's happened. And it will happen until there is a turning, a pivotal point in this nation. They're they're forbidden to talk about their point of view, if it's conservative or, God forbid, Christian. In In my personal opinion, the most damaging, perverse burden that the leftists have put on our kids in this nation, the so-called progressives, is the demonic gender confusion that visited on our children through entertainment and indoctrination. I talked about Disney yesterday. They're doing their part, for sure. Walt Disney would vomit if he could see what they've done with his name and his company. I'm sure of that. But indoctrination in public schools happens every single day of these young kids' lives. The left is poisoning your children our children, with its commitment to ending male and female as a distinct category. And that, in effect, is putting their fist in God's face and saying, God, you don't exist, or we don't care what you say if you said anything, because we we know better. We're progressive. We're enlightened. Prager noted in his article, he said, one of the great joys of life celebrating one's sex is now deemed nothing more than a hateful idea in many of your children's schools. And it is. And the left is misleading Christians across this nation. Chelson Vicari has written a book titled Distortion, How the New Christian Left is Twisting the Gospel and Damaging the Faith. It's very well written and deeply um, resourced. But in the book, Chelson says, and I'm quoting, some professing evangelicals are working to change minds when it comes to same-sex marriage religious liberty, big government, even the sanctity of life. Their success is noticeable in some evangelical churches, campus ministries, even Christian universities. The Christian left is trying, I'm quoting from the book, Chelson's book, the Christian left is trying to creep in, quietly uh, being the champion of a distorted version of the gospel more consistent with political liberalism than biblical teaching. The Christian left heralds its political agenda by undermining the authority of the Bible. Once the lines of truth are blurred, confused young evangelicals start trying to reconcile their faith 
with same-sex marriage, taxpayer-funded abortion, and all the rest of it. And when it comes to politics, they try to, because they've been misled, and because too many pulpits are silent, they try to reconcile what they have been taught a bit in their earlier years with what's being pushed down their throat in public education and in the culture in general. And these kids are trying to find their way and find their balance. And there isn't an equal balanced voice out there that should that should be there, but it isn't there from the church that's telling these kids, no, the professor's wrong. I don't care how tenured he is and how long his beard is. He's wrong. Don't believe him. And speak to the issues. I think pastors would be amazed if they would stand up in the pulpit and say something. And I'm not saying they, they all don't. They do. There are those that do. In fact, some are in touch with me. Some have called us and asked us what our opinion was on certain things. God bless them. But I'll tell you, there's too many pastors that just shuffle in and out of the pulpit every Sunday morning, and they're not saying anything. And that's what's happening in our culture today. That's what's the matter with our world. That's why CHOP happens on Capitol Hill. It's because of the silence in the pulpits. Charles Finney spoke to that. He had this whole litany of things. He said, if this is wrong in the culture, the pulpit is responsible. He went through that. I've read his comments about that on this program before, but it's true. And I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to us. I, too, am an ordained minister, and I know I have failed in those areas over my lifetime. But I will tell you that God spoke to my heart some years ago, and he told me to stand up and have a backbone and tell the truth based on the Bible. And some of you listening to this program today were members and attended the church I pastored, and you know it's true. If you didn't get there early, early, you couldn't find a parking place. It wasn't because I'm so great. It's because the gospel is great. The gospel speaks to the culture. It makes a difference. It changes lives. It penetrates the darkness. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. Well, our, our calling... Our great commission is to speak the light into the darkness in a way that they can understand it. And if we get rid of all of the hipster stuff and trying to relate and trying to be acceptable and kind of get along and kind of fit in and kind of maybe in our relation influence them a little, forget all that. It'll never happen. You've got to just stand up and preach the gospel. Peter did on the day of Pentecost. It worked. 3,000 people were converted. We've got to come to a point in our in our lives, in our careers, in our churches, where we simply tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yes, so help us God. One bullet grazed the elbow. Another bullet lodged in the back of President James Garfield. He was shot on... July 2nd, 1881, today. Today, in 1881, he was waiting for a train. The assassin was Charles Godot, and I wanted to mention him to you today. Charles Godot had been a member of the Socialist Utopian Oneida community. (laughs) The Oneida community had common ownership of property. This is the guy that shot Garfield. They had common ownership of property. They were socialist. They had abandoned... Moral norms, in other words, everything goes. They affirmed 
within their community. It was like a cult, political and religious. They affirmed free love, polygamy, pedophilia, group control over procreation, and children were to be raised not by the parents, but by, yeah, you guessed it, and they called it a village. Hillary must have read about that somewhere before she wrote her book, but that's what they called it. Legal incidents over psychological cult abuse, rape, had continued to devolve down into dissension, conflict, and they soon began fighting among themselves. They always do. Younger members were beginning to want to return to traditional marriages. In Seattle, in Seattle they call it CHOP. In Washington, D.C., Oneida, the community, would be called progressivism. By 1879, the socialist experiment was losing members and it eventually dissolved into failure and was written off as one more progressive failure. President James Garfield had been in office only four months. He wasn't wounded seriously, but unsterile medical practices tried to remove the bullet uh, resulted in an infection. In fact, Alexander Graham Bell, the telephone guy, he devised a magnetic metal uh, detector device to locate the bullet, but the metal bed frame confused the instrument. Two months before his 50th birthday, Garfield died on September 19th, 1881. Garfield, in his past, had been a, been a preacher, pastor, Franklin Circle Christian Church in Cleveland. His biographer, Frank Mason, wrote in his book, The Life and Public Services of James Garfield, he said, Garfield delivered his powerful and convincing sermons from the pulpit with the consent and encouragement of the church authorities and the congregation. He defended creation in a debate against evolution. And Mason writes that because the guy that he was debating was so overwhelmed with his presentation, probably the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, this guy, this atheist who was well-known and gaining traction, he was completely overwhelmed. And um, after the defeat, the guy said, I am abandoning my theory. And he gave up his fight against the inspiration of the Bible and said, it must be inspired. I am convinced. Garfield also became a lawyer in 1861, a major general during the Civil War. In his March 4th, 1881 speech, inaugural address, just 200 days before his death, he said this, Garfield, he said, let our people find a new meaning in the divine oracle, which that would be the Bible, which declares that a little child shall lead them, for our own little children will soon control the destinies of the republic. Our children will surely bless their fathers and their father's God that the union has preserved and that slavery was overthrown, that both races were made equal before the law. This man appointed, in the few days he was in office, appointed a whole bunch of black guys, including Frederick Douglass and Robert Elliott and John Langston, a whole bunch of guys. But he said this when he was a congressman on the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1876. He said, now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If the body is ignorant, reckless, or corrupt, it's because the people are. If it's intelligent, brave, and pure, it's because the people demand that. He said in the next centennial, 
If it does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, the, the morality of the nation, did not aid in controlling the political forces. I'm out of time, but thank you for being with me today. We'll talk about the 4th of July tomorrow. I'll see you then.